0: Welcome to the 2AMT Podcast. I'm David J. Lohr. There's an aggressive sort of experimental theater that longs to prove how smart it is, and how much smarter it is than you are. The Rubber Repertory of Austin, Texas, is not that theater company. Rubber Rep, made up of Matt Hyslope and Josh Meyer, isn't about telling you how it is. It's all about sitting in the room with you and asking, what if? They sat in a room with our Travis Bedard and a really, really small Sony digital recorder. Let's listen. So, Matt and Josh, if
1: you could introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about where WebRef has come from, uh, how long have you been
2: together, uh, what you've worked on? Sure. Uh, my name is Matt Heislope, and uh, Josh and I met in 1998 at the University of Kansas we had both arrived early for a college production of Oklahoma, for which I was in the chorus and Josh was assistant director. And, and we really didn't like each other at first. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we bonded during the world's worst study abroad trip in Katohi, Greece when uh, the kind of abandoned elementary school we were staying in got (laughs) firebombed. They had to get the U.S. Embassy involved, and the mayor of the town was standing guard outside of our elementary school every night. Um, (laughs) So then we started planning our first show together, which we did the next fall at KU, which was called An Evening of Force Feeding. And... The show involved, was it eight people? Yes. Uh, eight eaters that were selected from the students and faculty uh, on a long banquet table, all in formal dress, and we fed each of the eaters two separate types of food. We did them one at a time, and each uh, food pairing was also matched with uh, like a one-minute music selection. that know what, it? Yes. Each person got two two-minute feedings. Yeah, down the table twice. So, yeah. you, so you guys have been doing these, this experience
1: theater stuff since way back. Yeah, like our uh, first shooting is uh, like just ten years ago now. So. Are there pictures v- of force feeding?
2: Yeah. There's a video I can give you. Oh, yeah, we, we want have. video. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's <a> VHS. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, fi- we'll find a way. All right, all right.
1: Um, Okay, so you weren't officially rubber rep then. When you became officially rubber rep, when did you guys move to Austin?
2: I moved here in 2001, and Matt moved down a year later. Any good reason, or...? We'd been down for South by Southwest a couple of years, and just liked the town a lot. It felt like a place where it'd be pretty easy to produce theater, and it was, uh, you know, pretty vibrant. Music, film, theater, art scenes, and I liked how those might like, look together. It's also a very livable city. I had so many friends struggling to work like 80 hours at the Sharp Image in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to work 40 hours at the in Austin, <laughs> exactly. Um Okay, so you've moved to
1: Austin, now you're officially the Rebel Rep. What was the first thing you guys did? First thing we did was a production
2: of Wallace Shawn's The Designated Mortar. That uh, happened in the home of the of the lead actor. Was that before Frontier Fest? Uh oh no no, we did an early version of Mr Zillow's Company at Frontier Fest, two thousand and three.
1: So you did you did a sort of proto version of Mr Zlow's Company, and then you did Designated Mourner in a home. So now we're in two thousand three.
2: Yes. And then then that same year we also did the full length version of Mr Zillow's Company that was a late night show at the Blue Theater. I feel like that was kind of the first show that felt like what people have come to think of as a rubber rep show. So sort of your coming out of party.
1: Yeah. And then where does Thought in Three Parts come into that? Because so that's, that's... I only I moved to Austin in 2004 okay. and Thought in Three Parts was kind of my, oh, rubber
2: rep. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Well, yeah, that was years later, but we've, uh, you know, Wallace Shawn is our favorite playwright, and we've done three shows of his, The Designated Mourner, The Fever, and A Thought in Three Parts. And A Thought in Three Parts has been the show that we've wanted to do since college, and we were originally going to do it in Lawrence, Kansas, with a group called Emu Theater Company, but we couldn't figure out how to get the rights, and we wrote letters to Wallace Shawn, we wrote letters to his publisher, we wrote letters to theaters that were doing his plays in New York, and we just never got any response. So then years later, when we are in Austin, well actually, we were on tour with a production of Knock Clown by the Austin Company Physical Plant when we were in New York, and so we made it our mission when we were in New York to uh, find Wallace Shawn and get the rights to A Thought in Three Parts. And uh, he had two shows that were up at that point, Three Penny Opera on Broadway. Um, we had no luck hanging around the stage door of that. And then The Music Teacher, which was off-Broadway, this opera he wrote with his brother. So we had tickets to that. And we turned the wrong way from the subway. And so we were, like, almost late to the show. We were, like, running through town to get there in time. We got there, like, two minutes before curtain, ran into the lobby and... I look behind Matt and I see Wallace Shawn, and he's like the only <laughs> other person in the lobby. Matt, Matt, don't look, but it's Wallace Shawn. So we went up to him and, and explained to him the situation, and he was like, "Oh yeah, you wrote me a letter, didn't it, you?" And I said, yes, and he's like, and I never wrote you back, did I? He's like, I'm sorry, it's a horrible way to be. But uh, but he's like, you know, if you want to do a thought in three parts, you'd be a pioneer, my good man. And ever since then, he's just just been tremendously supportive. So.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I need I need to film of you guys running through New York, chasing down long What do you What do you consider rubble Rep's mission?
2: This isn't a great application. I you know you don't I have, to, have yeah. to. use all the biggest words. Yeah, I hate mission statements. We've no. never really had a serious mission statement. And whenever we have to do something like that for yeah. a grant application, it's the most Uncomfortable process of like looking at we at what we've done and seeing what it is and not what we want to do. What when you guys sit down and say let's do
1: a show. What what is your goal yeah. for for the show? Uh, I mean there there seems to me to be a trend about the show, but you know I want to catch you guys on
2: tape saying it. Right now, <laughs> right now I think I'm most interested in playing around with the way an audience experiences a show, because it seems like there's so many different things you can do with an audience, but 99% of the time you go to the theater, it's the exact same audience sits and watches a play. So both of these last two shows have tried to find new ways of having the audience interact with the production. With the Cascade Passing Fancy, it was a show... Um, from the very beginning we wanted to create a show in which the audience was reduced one by one until there was only one person remaining and we had the idea of having just one actor and one audience member left and then what kind of confrontation would result at that point and then also out of that and out of the experiences people had at the Cascade Pasty Fancy which we can talk about in a minute um, I'm interested in creating shows that almost force a sense of Community among audience members. Yeah.
1: Uh, let's let's talk about Cascade because I to I want to actually link when we when we post this I want to link to to a list of offers uh, on the on the Rubber rep blog and I purposely because I don't like audience interaction I purposely skipped Cascade of Passing Fancy uh-huh. I was I was too afraid to go. What well, you don't like with audience interaction? I, I but reading the list of offers and the cleverness of the offers and the way they were executed really made me sorry I missed it. So if you, you could talk about uh, the process of creating offers of Cascade of Passing fancy
2: and sort of how the show, the show itself was structured. Well the show was, a, called it a modern parlor game and you showed up at the theater and you went into a small room that sat about 30 people and was this character, this kind of grand old dame character uh, named the Duchess. It was her parlor. Um, so you sat there, little tables, old chairs, and then this Duchess character made her entrance. There's a little bit of song and dance performed by her, ten domestics who kind of ran the show. And then the Duchess uh, introduced the rules of the game you're going to play, and the Duchess offered, uh, made offers of 500 different experiences, uh, one by one, to the audience who wants. What are some examples? Uh, like oh, who wants to? Ha- I hear a Lincoln-Douglas debate performed by two homeschooled sisters. Who wants a ride to the border, leaving now? Who wants to tattoo an ass with their name? And on and on. Uh, so (laughs) as an audience member when you hear one that is the offer that you really want you can raise your hand and take that offer and you um, are escorted out of the space to somewhere else in the building we had ten different kind of themed areas in the theater or sometimes you're taken off premises entirely and you receive that experience and then the show is over for you Um, and another thing is that each of the 500 offers during the run, each one can only be chosen one time. So once it's performed, it's gone forever. So in trying to choose these sensations, You know, we felt like we had nothing left after this show because creating these kind of 500 experiential performances, it was kind of everything we have ever had any interest in doing. (laughs) Everything we know anything about. It was... 500 is a bigger number than it seems like. Yeah. It it felt at the end like kind of all of life was represented within these 500 experiences. Um, And it was absolutely exhausting <laughs> to prepare them all. <laughs> so did
1: you have to have you had to have all of the materials for all of, how many offers per show ready?
2: Oh Well like everything had to be ready from the very beginning because everything could be could happen on two nights the offers were completely random? Yeah. Correct. Oh. Because for opening night the Duchess was prepared to read through all 500. It happened that the audience Chose their offers well before she got through to them all, but so all
1: all 500 offers were ready to go at all times. Um. Well, things would be like whittled down, like by yes, right. But but as of as of opening, that entire chest of drawers had to be ready, right. And there there were many
2: situations of you know food and perishable things that like we had to have and had to have ready, but that might, might not be used. Live animals. Yeah. And there were so there were ten domestics, and each person was in charge of about 50 performances. Wow. Which
1: you would only do once. Correct. When it was selected. But for the person who chooses it, that's their one experience. Yes, no, absolutely. Just pretty high high charge. In terms of your 10 domestics, being ready to do any one of 50 experiences that you would only ever
2: perform once is just kind of a terrifying tightrope to be ready for. And the motto for the show was, some will win, some will lose. And some some loss, <laughs> and, and you know when people lost, it was it's always a little heartbreaking to us that sometimes it was just they chose the wrong offer for them. Sometimes it was a kind of bad alchemy between the performer and the audience member. It wasn't what they expected. Yeah, or sometimes the objects were presented in a, in a very literal way, and and how it was worded was exactly what you would get, but other times we would play with that and it wouldn't quite be literal or um. Sort of
1: yeah, and I think I think the parlor game aspect wasn't evident to your audience until about halfway through the run. Everybody's like, No, puns, people,
2: puns uh,
1: and and that's actually when I started realizing exactly what I had missed because by the time word got around about the puns and about the plays on language and exactly what the show was, you were completely sold out. And it's, that's sort of the way, actually, Biography of Physical Sensations is going. The same sort of word of mouth. But how do, you, how do you get from casket and being exhausted by the 500 offers to saying, let's do it again, but let's be more specific? Like, what's his thought process that says, okay, sure, preparing this was, you know, like deadlifting the
2: world, let's do it again. Well, this show, it, it uses some of the same... It has some, like you said, it has some of the same feelings as Casket. It's definitely an experiential show where we're manipulating audience members and
0: touching them and using all these props and all these
2: sensory elements, but it is much more finite. Every night, it's basically the same show. It's affected by how the audience responds, and that affects the timing. But what we do every night is the same. And for for the for the folks who are listening who haven't read every article on biography of physical
1: sensation, and who haven't accidentally been locked in a room with me at some point in the last three weeks, kind of can you give me the slug line? Give me the give me the bullet points of what biography of physical
2: sensations is. It's an experimental biography in which one person's life is captured entirely through their sensory experiences. There's no real narrative or story or dialogue. It's a person's life experiences conveyed just through the tastes, touches, smells, sounds, and all of these are performed on audience members. The audience sits in a circle, support group style. They get to choose between three sizes of chairs. The small chairs are the least intense sensations, uh, which is a fairly passive experience. And then the large chairs are the most intense sensations in which anything goes. You're going to get touched. You might get hurt. You might end up in a state of partial undress. And how how did you select the one person...
1: Uh, to make this a biography of... Uh, we interviewed about 50 people during
2: Fuse Box Festival back in April, and uh, each person was asked to bring a selection from a journal or diary entry, their oldest article of clothing, uh, something that smelled like them. We also had people give their life story in one minute or less. We, we sort of just narrowed things down at it so right. I Jamie Damon, um, I understand what we were looking for. Yeah, what, what criteria, I mean, you're
1: casting, you're not just casting the star of your show, you're, you're casting the subject of your show. And we have, we have a lot of folks who are listening who are directors and know what it's like to be looking for one thing in an actor, but what do you look for in the subject of a show? You know,
2: right at the bat, we needed someone who was very willing to share with us everything about their life and who could kind of recall sensory details from many years ago. And with Jamie, what was a huge draw, the woman we eventually ended up choosing? Well, first of all, uh, the first day of interviews, we had ten people in a row who would have been wonderful subjects. We were blown away by how interesting everyone was in this context and how willing everyone was. But the thing that really set Jamie apart was she's just documented and archived her life so extensively. She had a whole storage facility full of boxes of personal memoirs and letters and diaries and photographs. And she said, you know, she'd be willing to drop them all off at our house the next day. (laughs) 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 And all this was extra touching because she was one of a very, very few number of people who interviewed who really didn't know us at all. You know, and so there's that level. She didn't know us from Adam, and within days of meeting us, you know, we were looking at Polaroids of her, her childbirth and her baby book from the hospital from the 50s, and she really just opened up immediately. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, and it was great to have uh, this original material to draw from rather than relying entirely on the interviews. We still do a lot of interviews, but... But it was something that really hooked you
1: both... Into Jamie right away. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Because you know, you're about to devote six months to digging into this person's life. If you're not gonna, if you're not gonna be really hooked into it, it's gonna end up being a pretty dry experience, I <laughs> imagine. So you you did conduct
2: interviews. You didn't just read these journals and baby books. Matt did the interviews, and I stayed at home locked up with all the papers. Yeah. And very often there'd be things small, the papers that would sort of um, be the catalyst for the interview, like. Things that would come up that we just like have to get details on. Out of all of this, how many hours of interviews would you say you did? I don't know, t- t- 25 to 30 ish.
1: So out of this 25 to 30 ish hours of interview and all of these books and baby books and photos, you cull down a 90-minute show of experiences for 40 people. And how do you how do you go through get from point and to? A- how do you get through this massive information to what comes down to probably? Two hundred sensations.
2: Yeah, maybe even less. Maybe um, hundred or hundred and twenty-five sensations. You know, and, and
1: as someone who's seen the show a couple times, very specific sensations are very specific moments, and not all of them big, broad moments like childbirth or you know injury, but also really small, quiet
2: moments. How do you how do you pull those out of that material? a fairly random process. We uh, started out, we went into kind of workshop rehearsals this summer and we started out with a list of close to a thousand sensations that we'd taken from the interviews or from her archives and we could have written down many more. This was just things that
0: particularly stuck out or appeared like they might be good theatrical
2: material. Um, There's enough material in her life for a 24-hour show. <laughs> so many big things are left out. But so we had all this this big working script to bring in, and some of it was just little sensations and some were, were huge paragraphs containing lots of different sensory details about a really big experience in her life, like getting kicked in the face by a horse, which was pages of details. And then at workshop, we were working with about six or seven different creator performers, and people would... We had them all on index cards, each sensation, so people could take things that interested them and bring them home
0: and then bring back little performances that we tried on each other. And during the course of this, we
2: just started paring down the things that seemed interesting and that weren't redundant with other things we were doing. We got rid of anything that seemed... Student experience. You know. Well. That, yes. That's a sensory element, but that's something that is the same for everyone. Like, yeah. yeah. So it's not.
1: You wanted to make it very, very tailored to being about Jamie mm-hmm. and not just about being human. Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: Of the of the sensations that are still in the room, is there is there something that's been in from the beginning? Is there something that absolutely must be in this show? One of the, one of the sensations. I think the whole horse ordeal. Have to be in. There is no... Yeah, like... At, uh, yeah, y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what is, what is the most ridiculous thing you brought in on an index card that, that just could never be in a show but you had to try
2: it? A big flop. What? I know there are a few of those. Yeah, I feel like I had a few of those. Or... I things that are in the show now in like really simpler versions that I just like overly complicated in the workshop. Yeah, Matt's style is definitely to like for like a single sensation to bring in like forty five props like filled with fluids and like yeah. attached to his body. For example, <laughs> yeah, th- there's a very simple sensation in in the show that's just it's two audience members standing across the space. And their, their legs are pulled up and there's a tiny trickle of blood down each of their legs and they're instructed to stare at each other as, the, as that happens. That's as it appears now. Uh, when first we shot by me months ago, it involved like both people getting into these sort of spacesuits and harnessing themselves <laughs> into these the series of tubes and what is now a tiny trickle of blood was like a gallon, you know, was between two people and they stand over a tarp and uh, it was just the wrong direction. <laughs> So I'm going to go ahead and guess
1: that, that you designed the horse experience. Yeah, the, the horse was was... I'm just going to say, there are a lot of moving parts in the horse experience. And now listening to Scott disca- describe the trickle of blood experience as designed by him, I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, yeah. <laughs> I see a connection. Yeah. Of the, of the experiences that are still in the show, uh, small to large, if you weren't technicians in the show... Uh, performing the
2: experiences on people which one would you want to have you know the, the getting licked by the dog is, is always a show stopper I think i am experienced that it's 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 very nice <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, for those people who haven't seen the show it, it, you uh A bed of grass is laid out for you. You're instructed to apply peanut butter to your chest and your thighs. Lay back and relax on the bed. And then a 100-pound dog is let out to lick all of the peanut butter off of your body. A a 100-pound dog that is very fond of
1: peanut butter (laughs) is allowed to lick the peanut butter off your body. And it is absolutely a showstopper. You have this biography... There are there are a couple of experiences that are really intense in the big chairs. What's what's that audience reaction been like?
2: It's it's so different every night. Both on uh, each group has a certain feel, I would say, but then individually also. And while overall it seems like people had a lot of fun at the show. There's been some really extreme reactions as well. There have been. Uh, there's been a few people who've cried this weekend, but they enjoyed their experiences. They were just so overwhelmed by them. person who got shot, by the, um, shot, by the, shot in the leg by the BB gun sensation. She just she, not an actual BB gun. No, it's an airsoft pistol. But she was crying before she even got shot, but then getting shot really pushed it over the edge, and then several people who've had the horse chair have had very emotional reactions. Um, and then we've had a couple people this weekend who've had kind of emotional negative reactions, and they've come back after the show to vent to us, to tell us about their experience, tell us that they think we went too far with it. Okay. Uh, but we're, we're also getting many, many people who... Uh were admittedly quite scared to come,
1: but yeah, I'm, I'm going to raise my hand on that. Okay. I, I came in opening night fully intending to be in a big chair and chickened out down to a medium chair. So I am that person.
2: <laughs> it's such a fine line because you get people who say you've gone too far, and then you get you always get people who are like, "Is that it? Is that is that all you got?" Um,
1: so so you guys you guys wanted to change. One of your goals was to change how an audience experiences theater, you know, and you talked about building audience community. Do you think Do you think Biography of Physical Sensations is is successful at that? Do you think Do you think you guys are winning the game? You intend to be playful.
2: I hope so. I mean, it's it's I feel like it's halfway successful at that, and then it's halfway just very awkward. <laughs> we don't let anyone sit next to the people they come with to the show, which is it's. Interesting when I walk into the theater to start the show and you see everyone not sitting with the people they come with. Everyone looks a little uncomfortable right off the bat. I think because they just—it's it, sometimes it's unusually silent before the show starts. But then the show ends um, with the audience partnering up, and there's a uh, slow dance that's a sort of recreation of uh, Jamie and her husband's first date. And everyone's instructed to find a partner that they did not come with. And by that point. Um, over the song, there's a great amount of people talking to, to each other, and I know from my vantage point, I end up hearing a, a lot of people like discussing what they got and sort of complaining in the evening. So it, it, it seems like there is a, a journey from this awkward everyone in the circle, not knowing what, what, what to say, to like having a lot to say to one another. And I was so apprehensive about that ending because I hate shows where they make you get up and dance at the end, but. Yeah, we somehow we, like had this kids, we, we, we had this crisis about like cutting we like, why are we doing that? We, we would hate
1: this. But about halfway through the dance, after you get through the awkwardness <laughs> of dancing with a stranger, you do you release and you start sharing what you thought about the show and what you thought about your experiences. And I think honestly, it's a perfect way to end the show because after after a night of being set in your chair and not knowing what happens next, you know it's over and you can just release and talk about it. And lots of people have needed to debrief after the show and talk about what's gone on and what happened to them and what happened to this other person. And the structure of the show, which I think is a surprising thing, given the sort of improv feel of the show, is how structured it is. Mm -hmm. There's one moment about two thirds of the way through the show where Matt, you're the technician, for one experience, and in the middle of that experience, for a person in a chair, you turn around to take part in another experience as another part of the sensation. And it wasn't until that happened that it struck me how organized and how specific the delivery of those experiences were. And I think, I think that's a credit to y'all that that amount of mayhem and that amount of audience participation still comes through very specifically. There's still, you can see the show multiple times, and it's very different based on the reaction, but the show itself has a cohesiveness, and I think that's, I think that's really great. Good. Good. So, both casket and biography are very much about audience interaction and audience manipulation uh, in a non-negative sense. Is that is that something you want to keep playing with? Is biography the ultimate expression of that audience manipulation for you guys? Do you think the next show is going to be taking the lessons you've learned from casting Biography and trying it in a different way, or you know, are you guys going to go out and do some Martin Miller?
2: <laughs> you know, we're we're we have such a one track mind, we can only think about one show at a time. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I have <really> no idea. <laughs> like you know, once this is over, we'll start thinking of what the next uh, probably not doing the Arthur Miller really, though. I don't, I don't know. know. We talked about doing uh, Eugene O'Neill. Right. So, maybe O'Neill, maybe the, O'Neil the No, I don't know. We just we'll just get done with this. We'll say, okay, what's the next gimmick gonna be? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rubber Rep is currently on stage at the Fusebox Festival in Austin, Texas, with a return engagement of their Biography of Physical Sensations. This is a life told through the decontextualized sensations that are a life's building blocks and residue. These sensations are performed on the audience every night. You can find out more about them by visiting www.rubberrep.org. You can find out more about 2AMT by visiting us at 2 amtheatercom You can also join the conversation by searching for the hashtag 2AMT on Twitter. You've been listening to the music of Tamara Deering. I'm David J. Lohr. Tune in again next time for more Thinking Outside the Black Box from 2AMT.